Okay, so we're back at the Confession of Faith. We are, we are in uh, paragraph or chapter 8, and we are in Christ the Mediator. We only spent about 15 minutes on this last time. Kind of do a brief recap because it's been a couple of weeks. So uh, we've talked about Christ, uh, his identity uh, in the covenantal context. That's paragraph 1. This kind of gives us the history of salvation, the covenant of redemption, the order of salvation, and how Christ is related to all that, especially in the prophet, priest, and king. We looked at Christ as the only mediator, second person of the Trinity, um, human and God, two whole, perfect, distinct natures, but in one person. Um, the language of that comes from Nicaea and Chalcedon, the Chalcedonian Creed. So that was an important thing to understand that we've looked at um, ecumenical Orthodox Christianity from the early church is right here in our confession. We've looked at the identity of Christ and his works, especially his active and passive obedience on the, uh, his, his ministry and then his death on the cross. And then also uh, his resurrection, ascension, and how that language so closely resembles the Apostles' Creed. So this is the chapter that's really dealing with the heart of what Christians confessed in the early church. And that makes sense because most of the heresies were dealing with Christological heresies. Who is this person? That's one of the reasons why when you read an cre- early creed, you have something fairly short about the Father, pretty long about the Son, pretty short about the Spirit, because it was the question of who is this person, this God-man. So let us go to paragraph 5, and we'll read that. Chapter 8, chapter 8. Of, of Jesus Christ. This is paragraph 5 of chapter 8. The Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up, has fully satisfied the justice of God and procured reconciliation and hath purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. So we can break this into two parts, the satisfaction of God's justice and the purchase of eternal redemption. So let's kind of take this piece by piece as we go through it. Obviously, we're still focusing on Christ. His perfect obedience that we already looked at previously, so his active and passive obedience, his uh, sacrifice of himself. So this is viewing the death of Jesus as a sacrifice. That's really language of Hebrews and of John, the Lamb of God. Takes you back to the necessity of um, sacrifices in Leviticus for sin and for purification of just uh, common uncleanness that can happen in this world. So Jesus is offering himself as this sacrifice. And notice here's the spirit here since we were just talking about that kind of an idea, which he, through the eternal spirit, 
So everything that Jesus does and ever has done for us is always accompanied by the Holy Spirit, always. You can never divorce um, the Spirit's work from the Son. And I've showed you this before in things like uh, the angel in the cloud uh, in, in the Exodus. The angel is the picture of the cloud or the fire, the pillar, and the angel's inside. Or the burning bush, where the bush itself is burning. That's a picture of the Spirit. And inside, again, is the angel. See, it is baptism. He says the Holy Spirit has to descend upon him. And so even in his work at the cross, the Holy Spirit is the one uh, working in and through him. And it says, once offered up to God. Now, what do you suppose this is getting at? Why would it talk about being, he's offered up once? Think about your history of the church. Yeah, I think so. I think it's transubstantiation. So Christ's offering is not taking place, he's not being re-sacrificed every time that you take the Mass, which is the Roman view, kind of a very, very mystical view, and it necessitates the God is outside of time as well to do it. Um, it's a it's a once for all sacrifice, and that can, that language is coming right out of Hebrews. Okay, what has this sacrifice done? So, it says it fully satisfied the justice of God. This is incredibly important. Can't tell you how important this is to our theology, because we say we're saved by grace, right? Grace alone. So God's gracious and God's merciful and God is kind. And God forgives us of our sins. But left by itself, what happens to justice if he does this? What happens if people are wicked and you just let them off because you feel like it? Justice is destroyed if you do that. And everybody knows this. And so this shows us that in the midst of the grace of God giving us Christ... His justice is satisfied. Why? Somebody give me a reason why that might be. How is justice satisfied in the death of Christ? Yeah, Devin. Because the, the wages of sin is death. Christ died. It's like, you know, you and I broke God's law. Jesus paid the consequences for it. Yeah, that's exactly it. And so... Uh, that necessitates that Christ's death is becoming a substitute, which also uh, his death as the, as the lamb, the sacrifice, is a substitute. So why do you offer in the Levitical system a lamb or a bull or a ram or whatever? It's because you something's wrong with you, and God takes the substitute in your place and pardons you because of that because this the blood is spilt of that animal that creature in your place so this is really kind of getting at substitutionary atonement jesus dies as a substitute in your place so that you do not have to suffer the consequences that your sins deserve which is what justice is so how is justice satisfied in christ's death well, you deserve death, and like Devin said, Jesus died, and that's the consequence of sin. And God looks at that death as a substitute for any who trust in it because it is a death and a sacrifice that's unlike any other death. It's not just a death, right? 
It's, an, it's a sacrificial death that is legally, uh, through the priestly work of Jesus as the sacrifice and the priest, um, doing the things that are necessary in order for sin to be uh, and uncleanness to be taken away. It's, an, it's just an incredibly important uh, bit of theology for us to keep in our minds. We are not people that believe that, that justice is just robbed because God shows grace. We don't do that. I like how that verse, the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world, which is an interesting way to put it. It is. But what it says is that when David did a sin for which no sacrifice could be offered, how did God forgive him? The same way he forgives us all because that's the preeminent act of creation. Yeah. Very good. Uh, I think we'll come to that uh, in a more specific way even later here. Any, any questions about that or comments? He procured reconciliation. So everything that needed to be done to give reconciliation to people was done at that moment. This is an objective work of reconciliation. It's not talking about a subjective work. This is going to become important because we will talk about an idea of eternal justification in the next paragraph that people have sometimes messed this up because they view reconciliation as that subjective work of being reconciled to, the, to God, uh, which is when you're saved, as if that was done at the cross. That's not the case. This is an objective reconciliation. God is able to be reconciled now to men, as Paul says, because all that was necessary to be done has now been done. There's nothing legal uh, standing in the way of anyone being saved that God wants to save. Okay, at the same time, he purchases an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given him. Now, this is the doctrine of election brought straight to our minds. And it's talking about how everything that um, we need for our eternal happiness has now been given to Christ because of what he's done. And he's able to give it to anybody that he wants to. And of course, he gives it to whoever he wants to because the Father gives him who he wants to give him. Okay, any thoughts about this? <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> um, maybe, maybe I could say this more from like from a perception of experience, I guess. Because overall, like if I sort of, I think a very common um, misunderstanding that people always want to like, I don't know, like sort of pull up out of like two things is like justice and uh, wrath. Right? That what I find very interesting in this confession that confesses that it only just talks about the justice of God and not the wrath of God. <clears throat> uh, and, and, and like, um, I think, um, all right, and, and um, what I find so interesting on that is, like, people just get so um, wrapped up on a concept of wrath that they sort of forget gets why is God wrathful in the first place. It's, which is why I see this phrase of justice going up. Hmm. saying, like, no, we have to look at justice first. We 
before we can start understanding what does this rap even mean. And so I already see this uh, statement of confession on Briam as a means of reconciliation, which maybe it's sort of commenting a little later there. Every, at a different context, of course. But, but another thing I sort of found interesting is how it separated reconciliation to the purchase of everlasting inheritance of uh, like heaven and is divided <coughs> into the commas. Mm -hmm. uh, as I find noticing is that it allows that, it allows for um, objective and subjective categories in the atonement and still be within that confession. Hmm. So when he's saying objective and subjective categories, what he's talking about here is legal things outside of you and then personal things that happen to you inside of you. Yeah, John? I got a question about election. Okay. Does that mean that the only people that God chooses are the only ones that can come to Christ? Um, <laughs> that's, a big, that's a big question. The way that, the way that I think the majority of the church has actually answered this, you go back to Augustine, who talks about this, is that there's two senses in which people have an ability to, to come in spiritual matters. You have a natural ability, and you have a supernatural ability, okay? So everybody has, the, has a brain... They have ears. When they hear words come to Christ, they have the ability to understand that logically, to know what that means with their mind, and then to make a choice to do that. So the analogy that Dr. Boyce gives in his commentary is that of a lion who's hungry. So if you stick straw in front of a lion who's hungry... He has a stomach, he has a mouth, he has a brain, he can see the cow right next to him eating it. He has the natural ability to respond. However, he does not have the supernatural ability to respond, respond because lions hate straw. They also know that straw is probably going to wreck them. <laughs> so they will never eat the straw. And so that's used as an analogy for people in spiritual matters <clears throat> that though they have a mind that can respond and they understand what they're hearing, they don't want to for all kinds of reasons. They think God is horrible. They don't believe in God. <clears throat> um, they love their sin. They, they're afraid of being caught in their sin. They don't believe that he's good. All kinds of th reasons for it. And so that takes a supernatural change in a person. And the only people that that change happens to are those who have been elected before the foundation of the world. So we talk about two distinctions of ability. A natural distinction and a supernatural one. One everybody has one only some people have, and that's the grace of God to give that to anybody. Does that make sense? We'll come to this again when we talk about the atonement. A lot of people mess this up pretty badly. And they say that, no, people have no ability whatsoever. 
Only the elect can come to God. Well, that's true in one sense, but not in every sense. I'm sharing it with somebody who ever just sent it to me. So. I think it's always been said that you want to know your elect, repent, believe, hear God. Yeah. Trust him. Well, uh, let's qualify even that. Because they don't, all, they don't do it all at the moment that they're born, right? So you can be elect, and you might be elect, but God might not want to convert you till you're 90 years old. And you might have sat in church your entire life and heard the gospel thousands of times and never responded even though you're elect. That's up to God to call someone. So this is where the tulip comes in, the effectual calling of God. He calls you when he wants to. But at the same time, you don't sit there like, is God calling me? Yeah, right. If, if you're having those kinds of questions, then you've probably been called, I would guess. <laughs> I heard a story that was so, it pictures this in real life. I had a friend that was a missionary in Kiev and before he went to Siberia, and he met a young gal, and, you know, they connected, he shared the gospel with her, everything was going good. But then she got cancer, and she started turning away from the Lord, and he begged her, and he begged her, and she died, falling away from the Lord, Mm -hmm. and he stood beside her, begging her the whole time. Her heart was hardened. She got something, and I think God does that with everywhere. He he knows where you're vulnerable, and he pokes you in those spots, and then who you really are leaks out of you. And so her facing that leaked out of her. And him, he faced that in Siberia. He got cancer. He died. He held on to the Lord mm. because he was elect and she wasn't. Her actions demonstrated it. Yeah. Yep. And that's natural ability versus supernatural. God has to give people that supernatural ability. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, Eric? What about the issues with duplicity? It seems like there's something there. There's a reaction, but it's Uh, I'm not sure I follow what you're talking about. I don't know if that's what they mean when they're talking about implicit men in the Bible. Or is it there you are completely knocking out that's obvious, but Well in the case of this woman in the case of this woman, what came out at the end was what she really was. So again, it's not talking about um, Lord I believe help my unbelief. It's talking about no, I just don't actually have any belief at all. Torsten, did you have your hand up? Oh, yes. <laughs> I'm puzzling over that one. Yeah. Which one? Ele- election is, is a tough thing, but actually I've been thinking about doing this. I don't know if I will or not, but um, the whole point, if we want to set this aside for a minute and talk about uh, the tulip, okay, the five points of Calvinism. The only way that I can wrap my mind around this logically is to take people through a progression in the tulip itself. And I like the order that the tulip has, which is actually different than the order of the Synod of Dort, because you need to start the doctrine of election with the doctrine of depravity. If you don't start there, then your questions are automatically be, going to be, well, why doesn't God elect everybody? Why does he need to elect anybody? Okay, because if, if humanity is really as bad as the scripture says it is, that's the starting point. Then only after that will you be prepared to understand that election is actually a gracious thing. It's not dealing with his wrath. 
It's dealing with his grace. So everybody deserves wrath. Everybody deserves condemnation. Everybody. Except for one person, which is the one we're looking at in chapter 8. Okay? And the reason he, d- he doesn't deserve wrath is the reason why God is able to give us grace in the first place. Because he obeyed the covenant of works where we all fell short. Okay, so if people all deserve um, wrath, and that's your starting point, then election doesn't election changes. Instead of it being, well, how come God isn't fair to everybody? You see, the question of fairness is taken away by depravity. Everybody deserves judgment, condemnation, God's wrath. Because we need to understand how serious our sin is. But if we come to recognize that we're all sinful, then all of a sudden the question becomes, why in the world would God save me? I don't understand. That's kind of what Robert's prayer was about. I don't understand that. How, why would you do that? And then that turns into, I realize that I, on my own, I would have never come to you. For the same reason that a robber doesn't rob a bank and immediately go to the police station. <laughs> this is the reason why sinners who hear the gospel don't immediately turn to him. They can't do it unless their eyes are open to understand the beauty of God and to see him. Yeah, John? At some point in time or another, this is kind of what I was saying to Matt. So if you're elect, you might live 60 years before you come to God. Or you might come to him at such an early age you can't even remember it. That's up to him to open the heart. But there's no such thing as an elect person who doesn't come to God at some point in time before they die. Okay? And doesn't that say that all the Father has given you will, will come, come to, to me, me right. and nobody can take them out of my hand. And they hear my voice and they will come to me. Okay? Uh, when you know a shepherd in sheep, uh, sheep come to the voice of the shepherd, but they don't come to anybody else's voice. And that's a good thing, right? You were talking about, too, so young that they may not remember, but, you know, what about as later in life happens, but, you know, maybe you're not. It's, it's kind of pleasant. It's like you're not sure. Yeah, you but, see actions, Eric, but you, you, see actions you're dealing in the P. You're always dealing in the P. You have Tulip. You always are. And you know that. The P is the assurance of salvation. Okay? That's a subjective thing that people need to come to a greater realization of that I have that assurance because I've believed these other things that come after. Let's keep going in the order. You have unconditional election, which is necessitated because of depravity. But then after that, you have this atoning atonement. And this is where I kind of take umbrage with (laughs) Tulip a little bit, that the L is limited in its efficacy to those who are elect. The atonement will save them because God has elected them. Well, that, we can talk about other aspects of that and we'll do that at some point in time. But the atonement is effectual. It does everything God intends it to do for the elect. It just simply does. That's an objective work. Then you come to the I, okay? And what's this? This is the calling of God. We'll deal with this here in the next paragraph, actually. The calling of God is irresistible when it's a calling that converts a person. And the example I always use is Lazarus in the grave. Okay? He's been dead for four days. 
People are weeping. Jesus is weeping over the fact that people are weeping because they don't believe who he is. And so what does he do? He calls out him out by name. He says, Lazarus, Lazarus, come out. Well, if Mary would have done that, she could have called that all day long. And nothing, Lazarus would have done nothing. But the very voice of Christ creates life in him because he is life. So when he calls him by name and says, come out, he, create, he, just, he, he raised him from the dead at that moment. So what else is Lazarus going to do? He will come out. That's irresistible grace, you see. When you are brought to life, there is a point in time where you look at yourself and you go, man, I've been, I'm, I'm in these rotting uh, death clothes from being buried in a grave. I don't want to stay in here anymore. <laughs> what, you're not going to stay in the grave forever. So you come out once you come to that realization. The P comes along. And the P is, a, is an interesting one because people talk about it as perseverance of the saints. That's the subjective thing that a lot of people don't understand. Well, I don't know. I doubt. I have all these problems. I keep sinning. I keep looking at my navel and I'm not trusting in Christ, whatever. But there's another way of looking at the P, which is the preservation of the saints. And guess what? That has nothing to do with you. That has to do with God will save and bring to the end all those who are his. Those are different things. One's an assurance and one is a a truth that's outside of you. He simply will bring everyone that he's called to himself and they will, they will come and they will be with him in glory. That's what you just said. He will lose none of those whom the Father has given him. I would liken to that is when God created the heavens and earth and he said and they were. And they were, yeah. This is, this is an omnipotent God who does whatever he wants here. He is not thwarted by our unbelief, by our... Uh, sinfulness that continues in this world. He will get what he wants. And the cross pictures that so perfectly because you can't have everybody's sins placed on the cross because nobody would be in hell. So when you look at it, well, why is anybody in hell if he died for all their sins? Because if he died for every sin of everybody ever born, he didn't do a very good job. Because when you go out in the world and talk to people, they don't want to hear it. If he died for his people, he paid the price 100% of the time in 100% of the case of his people. Yeah, so his atonement is effectual for his people. Let's go to the next one because I think that you'll see that some of these issues are actually coming up again. This is paragraph six. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices where he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world, being the same yesterday, today, and forever. So look at this, the beginning of it. The price of redemption that we just talked about in the previous paragraph was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation. What does that mean? That means that justice was not satisfied until after the incarnation. Remember our discussion last week? We were talking about hell. And Sheol, how Hades and Sheol are the exact same place 
And how in the Old Testament, every single person went to Sheol. Or if you were a Greek, you would say every single person went to Hades. Why? Because of this. Justice had not been paid. The redemption was not paid until after the incarnation. So where else are they going to go? Now, we also talked about how in that place there was more than, there was compartments. So not everybody went there to suffer. Those who didn't suffer were those whom God was going to look upon uh, and know that in the future he would rescue them out of there because of the work of Christ on the cross. Now, if this is true uh, that God... um, does this for people before, then you need to understand something about what happens at the cross for those who come after. This is a legal payment. This is not a subjective saving of everybody at that moment on the cross who will ever believe. No, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified and regenerated and changed 2,000 years before Jesus ever came in the flesh. You and me live 2,000 years after the cross, and we are not justified at the cross. No. When are we justified? Through what? Faith alone. So we do not believe in eternal justification. We believe that people are justified by faith and that because of the work of Christ, God can look at people beforehand and justify them. This is straight out of Romans 3, by the way. Okay, He, he looks upon those in the, his forbearance knowing that Jesus is going to die later. So he can justly put them in kind of the good part of hell or whatever. Um, because he knows that the work of the Lamb is as sure as if it happened before the foundation of the world. What's the, uh, the corollary of the relationship between justification and salvation? Are you looking specifically at something in the text here? No, are you uh, just thinking about the words themselves? Just like... uh, to me, justification is a smaller aspect of salvation, which is a larger concept. So you could talk about salvation as being when you're justified or when you're sanctified or when you're glorified. But justification is that moment in time when God declares you not guilty. Does that make sense? Okay. Okay, so what I have here for point B is that the elect in ages past received the benefits of this work even though it had not yet happened because the plan and purposes of God could not be thwarted. That's our doxology today. He is sovereign. He does whatever he wants, whenever he wants to do it, and nobody can do anything to thwart that. I just can't imagine a God that I, I'm believing in a God who wasn't like that. And I know so many people do and call themselves Christians. And I just wonder, you know, how, what, kind of, uh, what kind of assurance can somebody like that have if they're always thinking that I can thwart God's plans? I also wonder, who does that make as actually sovereign in this world?
Here's your lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Text that's found in both Revelation and Peter. And all this happens because God does not change. Same yesterday, today, and forever. And by the way, that's referring to Jesus, who does not change. Because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. All right, let's go to paragraph 7. We've got four more to get through. I think we can do that. Christ in the work of mediation... We've looked at that already, him being the the priest who mediates, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself, yet by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person dominated, denominated by the other nature. Now that's like, what is this talking about? It's heady stuff, right? So, Everything that Christ did in his incarnate form, he's, it's one person doing that work. It's with two inseparable natures. Now, this is uh, specifically talking, I think, against the heresy called Nestorianism, which very much wanted to split up the two natures of Christ. And quite honestly, I think there's a tendency in some reform circles to kind of be quasi-Nestorians. Where it's like, we always want to talk about how, oh, he didn't do that in his human nature. Oh, he didn't want to do that in his, in his divine nature. I mean, I get it. I understand why we want to do that. But we need to be careful. Okay, look at this in point B. We must not split the two natures of Christ into parts, thereby dividing the person. A good example of this is the historical confession that the church has always made that Mary is the mother of God. This drives some people nuts. He's not, she's not the mother of God. She's the mother of Jesus. Well, what is the point of calling her the mother of God? And I'm not talking about in its bad sense. Okay? It's one person. Okay? You can't, it's a mystery. But it's one person. All right? So... When we talk about the, what, what Jesus did, he did according to each nature itself, but as one person doing it. So this is just kind of a, a I think that that's in there for people that really get hung up on wanting to, to say, well, he did this in his divine nature. No, he did it in his human nature. Be careful, because you can go in some places that aren't good when you do that. Yeah, so to me, yeah, it's a good question. Arianism is a, uh, I call it a first-degree heresy. Nestorianism, I actually think of as a second-degree heresy. It's not as serious, especially when you read, goodness, it's, it's a horrible thing that happened in the church. It was uh, Nestorius and his, uh, I think it was his mentor, Theodoret of Seir, and they were fighting against, um, it wasn't Basil, it was Cyril of Jerusalem. And the way that these guys attacked each other was so unbelievably non-Christian, you can't even imagine it. And it turned out that Cyril is the one who won the fight because theologically he was correct. But they were actually fighting over things that I think are kind of secondary in nature. I mean, like I said, I get the reason why people want to say, well, he did it in his human nature. 
Nestorius was coming really close to dividing the two natures so that you end up with a guy which in Arianism, he's not God at all. And so Arianism is a first degree heresy. Like this is a denial of the divinity of an eternal nature of Jesus Christ. Yeah, Robert? Um, when I started thinking about it, um, like when we, when we have this tendency, it's like, no, this is Jesus the man versus Jesus the God. But the thing is, like, I have to start thinking about it, it's like, oh, so like the best error, the best way to correct Nestorianism is that in all the actions that Jesus the person did in his incarnation, it must be both his divine and human natures are participating, though distinct, but participating yeah. within one another. Yeah. Or, and and like um, um um and and having from that view, it will give a very good idea of preventing us to separate the natures when we say that both natures are together; they're in the same action. Like in other words, like yeah, like Jesus died on a cross, or God died on a cross. But we know that because he's in, incarnated. It, they're both participating in that same action. Let me t- I was thinking about the death of Christ, because I think it's a perfect example, all right? It's very easy for people to want to say, well, his human nature died on the cross, because the divine nature can't die. I mean, that makes all the sense in the world, right? Completely. I think what people forget is that, you know what? Human nature doesn't die either. Is not Jesus the God of the living? Not the dead? What died on the cross? His heart stopped. (laughs) He stopped breathing. His body was put into a grave. Guess what happened to Jesus Christ at that moment? He went to the realm of the dead. Because that's what everybody did. Now, the thing is, it wasn't just his humanity that went to the realm of the dead. The deity is married to the humanity. So that the God-man went to the gates of hell and said, I'm here, let him out. (laughs) People don't understand that. you You can't separate them. That's the point. If Jesus would have done that work in the three days uh, when his body was in the grave and it was only the man, I don't think he would have won. <laughs> it was the God-man who did all the work, and that's what you're trying to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like I have to think about like, like the Trinity, like we have the distinctions, they have their actions or relationships, but the relationships are in one another. Or that's probably the same what same um, type of thinking to go to the incarnation like the human nature the divine nature are distinct but they're both involved in the actions yeah and, and, and they're in one another or they like, could still have distinctions between them we do this with ourselves right i mean we are not just bodies bodies with souls and death is a intermediate um not good state where we're separated from our bodies so what's the greatest hope of the christian of all that one day we will be united back with our bodies so that we will be soul and body for eternity but it doesn't mean that when my body dies i cease to exist 
Because I actually have this kind of two, I'm a composite. And we can think of Jesus in a, at least an analogous way to that. And even if you think about it beyond his cross, can you imagine how hard his life was? He didn't sin. He didn't lie for his friends. His brothers hated him, like it says in Psalms, because of, you know, he didn't do, he, didn't, he never lived exactly like human beings that have a sinful nature. He lived a harder life because of what he had to face being perfect. You know, he would never sin. Mm -hmm. And so people must have just hated him being around him when it talks about his own brothers hating him. A lot to think about there. <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. <laughs> yep. Yeah, that, that's the rare basis. Yeah. Yeah, Rick. I want to counterbalance what you said because I always wrestle with this. Paul said, uh, I'd rather depart and be with Christ. And you and I talked about this years ago. Stephen's like, I see the glory of God. Mm -hmm. And they put him to death with rocks and he was ready to go. I want to be in that. I like the thief. He was like, Jesus said, you're coming with me. I'm going to get paradise, but you're coming with me today. Right, right. I'd like to hear that. I just, I want, I want to die well. Right. I've seen too many Twilight Zone stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Twilight Zone theology is probably not the best, right? <laughs> All right, let's go to number eight. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same, making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, overcoming all their enemies by the almighty power of wisdom in such a manner and ways as are most cons consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation and for and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it uh, we should probably spend all week next week on this one but this is the application of salvation of the prophet priest and king that is coming from the free grace of god this is just fleshing out what we said a minute ago we've really been talking about this whole time that you're not just you're not saved at the cross, but God works through means in this world to bring people to himself. And there's a whole lot of things that have to take place in the life of a person. Uh, before they're called, they need to be elected, they need to be called, they need to be justified, they need to be sanctified. Eventually they'll be glorified. That's kind of what this is talking about. He does this perfectly through all his wisdom. He does everything that's needed. He's overcome all the enemies. You see how it's really focusing on the power of Christ to do what he said he was going to do to anybody that God has given to him. Any questions? Good, let's move. <laughs> we can come back to this one next week if you want to. Let's finish 9 and 10, though. 
This office of mediator between God and man is properly only to Christ, who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. Jesus is the only way to salvation. Insanely offensive statement in a postmodern world. Why? Because Jesus is utterly unique. He alone is the perfect image of the Father. No one else. No one. Not Zeus. Not Satan. Not any God that you have in worship. He's the only one. Nobody else has ever done what he did. We can move this into the church, and you see I have their co-mediatrix with Mary. What the church has done over the course of a thousand years, where I think they started off well with her, to elevate her to some degree more than others, I don't have a problem with that. Like I said, there's only been one woman who's ever been given that privilege, and it's not people in this room. One woman literally bore the God-man. Blessed is she among women. Blessed is the fruit of her womb, Jesus. I don't have a problem saying that. But when you move to creating her to be a co-mediatrix, queen of heaven sort of stuff, you're coming dangerously close, and, and sometimes you're crossing the line, which quite honestly has roots in paganism and goddess worship. Direct parallels, Asherah and uh, Baal kind of stuff polytheism yeah and that's something that um the roman church has been kind of prone to because of the way that they viewed taking over a culture and just kind of renaming (laughs) the pagan things with saints and whatever that's something that the reform said we need to stay high away from that there is one mediator of course we do this in other ways too like with priests and there's one priest and and uh that'll come up later with the doctrine of the church but I don't know what their view of Mary is, to be honest. I just don't know. I know they hold the elevator high, Theotokos. Um, giving birth to God, that kind of stuff. But um, for us, we'll just stay with us. We do not worship Mary as the goddess. She is not given equal status. She didn't do anything for my salvation, honestly. She gave birth to Jesus. <laughs> That's what she did. She raised him. She didn't go to the cross. She didn't obey as a sacrifice, as a sacrifice, as a priest. She didn't do that. She sinned. Oh yes. Oh yes. <coughs> and then the last one. This number and order of offices is necessary. Uh, it's talking about prophet, priest, and king. For in respect to, of ignorance, we stand in need of his prophetical office. In respect to our alienation from God and imperfection of the best of our services, we need his priestly office to reconcile us and to present us acceptable to God. And in respect to our averseness and utter inability to return to God and for our rescue and security for our spiritual adversaries, we need his kingly office to convince, subdue, draw, uphold, deliver, persevere us to the heavenly kingdom. So we're ignorant. So the great prophet needed to teach us, and still does. Old and New Testament, and through his person, when he was here in his ministry. We're alienated. We need a priest. We needed somebody to intercede for us. I think it's interesting that it really attaches the focus of what we've been talking about here this morning, his powerful work 
to subdue us and call us and save us. It applies that to his kingly work, which is honestly exactly what we just got done in the service talking about with the doxology, isn't it? He's the sovereign king of kings and lord of lords. To him is all honor and dominion. Why? Because he's able to do things like this. That ought to cause you to burst out into more doxology. Amen. We'll finish there.